Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, page 809 in your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, page 809 in your pew Bibles. Of course, I don't have to tell those to be dismissed who already know the way and their timing. Bless the Lord for the little ones. For today's sermon, I have a ton of questions for you. Some of the answers will come from scripture and some will come from within you. But my goal is that by the end of the sermon, your hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness will increase. To the glory of God. To begin with, I have two underlying questions that I want you to think about as I progress through the sermon. What is the hungriest you have ever been, and what were you hungry for? What is the hungriest you have ever been, and what were you hungry for? You'll see what I'm, where I'm going in a minute. When it comes to food, sometimes you'll hear people say, I'm hungry, but I don't know what I want to eat. I've even, I've even said that uh, myself, right? And that is truly a late 20th century and 21st century Western culture type question. Can you picture someone in a third world country uh, besides the leader saying, I'm hungry, but I don't know what I want to eat? There are even some places right here within America where food is so scarce that you will hardly hear anyone say, I'm hungry, but I don't know what I want to eat. Very similar to that, in Jesus' day, the majority of the people lived below the poverty level as roughly half of the population were someone's slave or bond servant. So in our text today, when Jesus mentioned something about hunger and thirst, the people could identify with those conditions. Many would have been curious as to what he would have said Next, since uh, uh, thousands of people, some of them they knew personally, died yearly from malnutrition in that part of the world. So they wanted, they hungered for someone who could speak into their, life, uh, into their lives, someone who may be able to bring relief from those uh, conditions in some form or fashion. They are no different from every one of us. Every person ever born has an internal and eternal desire to be filled or satisfied. But many try to fulfill that inner desire externally. Some try to find the answer in love or lust. Some try to find it in money or the things that money can buy. The problem is that without Jesus the Christ and the life-changing power of the gospel, the pursuit of all of these things is vanity, meaning empty or elusive. King Solomon compared it to chasing after the wind in the book of Ecclesiastes. I believe he sums it up best when he writes, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. That's in chapter 1. But then in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, he goes into detail concerning some of the things he accomplished. For example, he writes, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. 
I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. By the way, when you see the phrase under the sun, which is recorded 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes and nowhere else in the Bible, it means to live a life apart from God. To live a life separated from God is to live a life where you only have an earthly perspective. That truly is a fruitless and empty life. Solomon said, for the person who lives a life like that, all of their days are full of sorrow and their work is a vexation. Even in the night, their heart does not rest. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 23. Why is that? Because all of our accomplishments and busyness apart from God and an eternal perspective will be lost in the grander scheme of things and will soon be forgotten. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 23. So once again, I ask, what is the hungriest you have ever been and what were you hungry for? Whether food or money or prestige and power or acceptance and love, whatever it is, apart from a life that's devoted to Jesus Christ, these things can never satisfy. In other words, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. My big three questions for this morning's sermon are, what is it to hunger and thirst for righteousness? And question number two, who is it that hungers and thirsts for righteousness? And question number three, are you hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of Christ? Follow along as I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Once again, it's page 809 in your pew Bibles. Behold, this is the pure and holy word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word, Lord God. You have taught us how we should live before you. You have filled us with a desire to serve you, Lord God, to, to live a life pleasing to you, Lord, to, to bless you with our, our, our energies, our time, our talents, our treasures. So I pray as we spend time in your word today that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand what you are saying and give us a desire to do right, Lord, an increased desire to serve you as servants of the king. And please guide me, Lord. Please loosen my tongue that I would speak truth accurately, boldly, clearly. And I pray that the hearts of men and women will be changed today, Lord God, all for your glory. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Question number one. What is it to hunger and thirst for righteousness? In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, 
He preached about a type of blessedness or happiness that the people have never heard uh, in a way that, 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 that came from no other person. As a matter of fact, according to uh, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 29, as he's finishing up this very uh, sermon, uh, the writer Matthew informs us that when Jesus finished speaking, the crowds were amazed and, and said he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Not only were Jesus' words the words of a king, but when he spoke, he spoke with such authority that he didn't need to quote anybody else unless it was somebody who was speaking about him, whether prophesying or just loving him with grandeur and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ as he saves. He simply spoke as king of kings and Lord of lords. And the last time that we were in this portion of scripture, I spoke of how the meek are humble and self-controlled of how they are servants and how they are secure. We also came to understand the biblical definition of meekness, to understand that it does not mean timidity or one who's fearful or to be without power, but on the contrary, it's keeping your power under control, even controlling what you hunger and thirst for. So as Jesus begins speaking of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's separating the idea of hungering and thirsting for physical food, from hungering and thirsting for the good, just, and totally satisfying spiritual food that only comes from God. The Greek verb that Jesus used to describe hunger and thirst are incredibly powerful words. The word pano means to suffer deep, excruciating hunger, while the word dipseo carries the idea of someone who has a passionate, almost insufferable thirst. Then Jesus constructs these words with the strongest physical emotions as a continuous action, as a present participle. It, it, it's, it's as if these are the ones who are always hungering and always thirsting. If you could imagine someone who only eats two slices of bread and drinks a sip of, uh, of water uh, every day for years, that's the picture these two Greek verbs portray. Constant hunger and constant thirst. Those who desires are that way towards righteousness. They are the ones who are on their way to heaven. What is Jesus not saying? He is not saying that only those who live righteously, live righteously 24-7 are the ones who are on their, way, on their way to heaven. If that were the case, none of us would make it. What he is saying is that those whose greatest desire is to do the right thing according to God's definition of what's right. These are the ones who will be satisfied. Whether it's partially here on this earth through our contentment in Christ or sometime in the future at the consummation, restoration, and glorification of all things, they will be satisfied. That's what we are to be living for, the future. In certain Christian circles, there's this saying, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. In our culture, I really don't think that's our problem. In our culture, the tendency seems to be uh, that I need to get mine now. I need to be relieved now. I need to be fulfilled now. I need my riches now. I need what is going to satisfy me now. 
But biblically, there's going to come a time when this perishable will put on imperishable and this mortal flesh will be swallowed up in immortality. Do you know what that means? That means disease and physical ailments will be no more. Depression and anxiety will be no more. Most importantly, sin and death will be no more. Our hunger and thirst for righteousness will finally be fully satisfied. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait to stand in the presence of God fully satisfied. Jesus' sermon was not the big change your life in seven easy steps message some of them and some of us may be looking for. But it's exactly what they and us need to hear. Like most of us, they thought their happiness would come if only all of their physical needs were met. But Jesus would demonstrate for them several times throughout his earthly ministry, this just is not so. Even a few months from this day that he's preaching on on the mount, Jesus will feed them until their guts are bursting. So much so that after they finish eating, they'll, they'll have 12 baskets of food left over. Yet, Many of them still came to him the very next day looking for more. That's what material items do. They leave you wanting for more. But each one of his beatitudes points us to a longer lasting, even eternal fulfillment and joy. Now, as I said in a previous message, no one gets into heaven by manufacturing these beatitudes or blessings apart from the saving grace of God. Rather, they act as measuring sticks by which we can test our belonging to Christ and we can measure our growth in Christ. One of the most joyous things you can do is uh, to have your child uh, uh, stand up against the doorpost or the wall and measure their height. Many kids, they, they, they love this, right? And they look forward to growing. And so what they'll do sometimes is they'll hang on a pole or, or lean over the, the, the bunk bed thinking this will increase their growth, make them to, to, to grow up faster. And they'll come right back and ask you to, 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 to measure them again because they are so eager to grow. That's how we are to be in our hunger and thirst for righteousness. With every temptation, asking ourselves, am I growing in my resistance to sin? At every moral fork in the road, contemplating, is this the right thing to do? I believe this was the intent behind the use of the phrase, what would Jesus do? At least when it was used at the end of the 19th century by many, including Charles Spurgeon. That's way before it was repackaged and became a marketing tool and rendered almost useless in its use at the end of the 20th century. When temptation comes, there are times when we all fall short of doing what Jesus would do. But after we have confessed that sin and prayed for a steadfast heart of repentance, we should be eager to measure our growth when that very same temptation comes back around. We should never be content falling to the same sin over and over and over again. King David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me 
and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalms 139 verses 23 and 24. David said, try me and lead me. Test me and lead me. That should be our prayer. That's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Turning the lens around, the apostle Paul instructs Christians to search themselves. When he writes, examine yourselves, which is a technical term. It's, 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 it's the idea of placing something under a microscope to seeing what it is made of. He, say that, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Some of us are so super confident that we're in the faith when we have very little reason to do, to do so, to, to be so confident. And there's almost no evidence. Paul wrote, test yourselves. And Jesus gives us several ways for us to practically test ourselves right here within the Beatitudes. For instance... When we recognize by the grace of God that we were poor in spirit, a.k.a. spiritually bankrupt, we pleaded for the Lord to save us. And since then, as we're continually front confronted by our spiritual poverty, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. If that's us, we can check that off. We have passed that test. Also, since we have been made new creations in Christ, there should be some degree of mourning over our sin, as we increase in our awareness of the depth and the broadness of our sin and the sins of society. All of this causes us to hunger and thirst for righteousness to come bursting through in ourselves and in society. If that's us, we can check that off. We have also passed that test. Recognizing our spiritual poverty and deep mourning over sin should remove pride, conceit, arrogance, and produce in us Christ-like meekness. All of these act as tests for us to measure ourselves. Of course, there will be moments when we lack faith, moments when we out and out disobey the commands and principles of the kingdom, but that should not be the, the major part of our life or what we are known for. Which brings us to question number two. Who is it that hungers and thirsts for righteousness? Every so often, you may run into a church goer who tries to justify their worldly lifestyle by comparing themselves to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. They'll tell you, for I delight in the law of God in my heart one minute. God knows my heart. But then the next minute, I'm taken captive to the law of sin that dwells in my flesh. I'm so wretched. Then they'll continue to walk in their fleshly ways. Arrogant, proud, conceited, gossiping, slandering, divisive. To their harm, they ignore how Paul goes on to explain how they might be able to gain the victory over this struggle. The struggle that all Christians have. In the very next chapter, Romans chapter 8 verse 5, he writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So the question is, 
What are you setting your mind on? What are you hungering and thirsting for on a daily basis? Is it the things of the world which are fleshly, or is it the things of heaven, which is where we find righteousness? The evidence will declare it. Years ago, I used to have daily discussions with a Christian friend, and I used the word friend very loosely. With a, sorry, back it up. I used to have daily discussions with an atheist friend. So you understand where I'm going with this. Friend is used very, very loosely. Um, and actually, he, he looked like me, just a little shorter, right? And he would offer what were supposed to be scientific proofs of evolution. And I told him Christians have no problem with real science. DNA was discovered through science. Medicine that works was created by science. If it's observable, measurable, repeatable, and testable, it's science. Macroevolution is not science. Even Darwin called it a theory. So one day, when the atheist and I were having a random conversation, he told me how he would go on Christian dating websites and date Christian women because, according to him, they were more naive. And he would be able to accomplish his fleshly goals at a cheaper cost. All he had to do was quote one or two scriptures and go to church with them once or twice. So as my patience with him began to disappear, I told him all of your talk about science being the reason that you cannot become a Christian is just a sham. The real reason you won't come to the light of Christ is due to the fact that you love darkness rather than light because the things that you are doing are evil. I said you love sin too much to let it go. He loved the flesh too much to leave it. But here's the thing, church. Apart from the grace, mercy, and spirit of God, I might be just like him. Apart from God's love in calling me from eternity to the present and saying, you are mine now. I may have been doing the same thing. I never want to look at someone who is unregenerate as if I'm better than them. It is all by the grace of God. All acts of righteousness. Hear me clearly. All acts of righteousness are done because of the grace, mercy, and spirit of God. What he does is he restrains sin. And he doesn't allow wickedness to reign at its fullest. He is the reason that we are not left with the cry of despair. Oh, wretched man, am I. Period. And he is the reason we can put to death the wicked deeds of the body and live a life that glorifies God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is mentioned only once in Romans chapter 1 to chapter 7 in the epistle of Romans, is, is, is mentioned uh, nearly 20 times in chapter 8 alone. In this one chapter, we learn that for the Christian, he frees us from sin and death, verses 2 and 3. He gives us strength for victory over our unredeemed flesh, verses 5 to 13. He confirms our adoption as God's children, verses 14 to 16. And he guarantees our ultimate victory in Christ, verses 17 to 30. Because of him, we have been freed, strengthened, adopted, and guaranteed to be victorious. All of this comes from God. God has freely given us everything. So we are 
and shall be satisfied in Christ, which is all due to our union with Christ. John Newton once said, our righteousness is in him and our hope depends not upon the exercise of grace in us, but upon the fullness of grace and love in him and upon his obedience unto death. Newton was stressing that our union with Christ and his righteousness was purchased by God and confirmed by God. God the Son in the first instance and God the Father in the second instance, which stands in direct contrast to the self-righteousness of the Pharisees who were listening closely to the Sermon on the Mount. Christianity speaks to those who seek Christ's righteousness rather than attempting to establish a righteousness of their own. The righteousness that comes from God is the only thing that will satisfy our hunger and thirst for a right relationship with him. Righteousness comes from God and in turn, we hunger and thirst to be righteous before him in every relationship we have and every decision we make. Jesus, the son of God, offers himself as the bread that cures our hunger and the living water that quenches our thirst. Therefore, we don't have to do what our flesh is telling us to do. We should not expect the masses to reject him by doing what the flesh is telling them to do, but not us who are called by his name. However, unfortunately, we do reject him. How do we reject him, you might ask? First off, keep in mind there are two forms of rejection. Temporary rejection, as in Peter's three denials of knowing Jesus, and ultimate rejection, as in Judas's betrayal of Jesus. And I want to spend just a moment looking at how we temporarily reject Jesus. One way we do this is by replacing our trust in him with trusting in something or someone else who we believe will bring us great satisfaction, even if it's, if it's for a time. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where God describes the nation of Israel's common behavior, which serves as a warning to us. There he says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Within the nation of Israel, there was a mixture of believers and unbelievers. But unfortunately, oftentimes the believers followed the ways of the unbelievers. God charges them with two evils. Outright forsaking him was one evil, and replacing him with idols was another. They intermittently replaced God with idols, a a.k.a. broken cisterns. Now, cisterns were used for holding some type of liquid, mostly uh, wine or, or water, uh, from pitchers to wells. And God is saying, my people have rejected me. Some have verbally rejected me, but most of them have replaced me. The fountain of life-giving water that never ends. And they replaced me with false gods. They have placed their trust in things or people that they think will provide them with life. But in and of themselves, those things are faulty and leaky. They can't sustain the very thing my people need, eternal life. Only I can do that. 
So we see them go through the cycle some of us are familiar with. God blesses them. They sin against God. God chases them, chastens them, and they repent. So forth and so on. God blesses them. They sin against God. God chastens them, then they repent. As Pastor Matt would say, sin is stupid. It's replacing your worship of God with something or someone you deem more valuable than God. It's not necessarily an out-and-out rejection of God. No, we would never do that. But we're highly susceptible to replacing him because it is so subtle. We may not recognize it until God removes it or them. And then we're devastated. God does not just sit back and watch his children dwell in idolatry. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. The apostle John lovingly but sternly warns God's people in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, that we will not find what we need to, 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 to cure our deep-seated hunger and thirst anywhere in this world when he writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. But I don't know what I would do if I didn't have fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. Every possession we own, every venture we accomplish should not be placed on the throne as our greatest love. The world's system, desires, beliefs, and material items should not consume our affections. If any of us should find ourselves chasing hard after this world's system, desires, beliefs, and material items, the Bible as a whole screams to us, turn! Respond humbly to the Spirit of God and run to Jesus. There you'll find a feast to fill your hungry soul. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to take inventory of our hearts and ask ourselves, what am I hungry and thirsty for? Is it power? It's addictive. Is it possessions? They're fleeting. Is it praise? That belongs to God. For some of us, our entire lives can be compared to the roller coaster at the amusement park. We spend so much time waiting on ridiculously long lines because this ride promises to be more exciting than our last ride. And some of us love the rush, while some of us are scared half to death, not knowing what's going to happen at the, at the next turn. But when the ride is over, even most of the scared among us will say, that was great, let's go get on another one looking for fulfillment, looking for this, this thing that is not going to come. It's always going to, 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 to leave you wanting for more. That didn't do it. I need something that promises to be more exciting. So we'll get on some death-defying ride of our lifetime, but only it never ends up being that. When it comes to this verse about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and how they will be satisfied, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I do not know of a better test 
that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite sure you're a Christian. If it is not, you had better examine your foundations again. Think about Moses. He spoke to God in the burning bush. He saw God's power in the plagues and in the parting of the Red Sea. He submitted to God's leading through the clouds by day and the fire by night, and he personally drank God's water from a rock. Yet Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. Moses hungered and thirsted for Christ's righteousness. Then there was King David. King David was a man after God's own heart. He walked in close communion with God. Zeal for God's house had eaten him up. Yet he cried out, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalms chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. At this point in, in David's life, nothing else mattered except God and his righteousness. That's what he hungered and thirsted for, and he is now satisfied. Which brings us to question number three. Are you hungering and thirsting for Christ's righteousness? One of your children here at Woodside, who will remain nameless, was screaming at the top of their lungs while I was in the fellowship hall talking to someone, right? So I stooped down and I said, shh. They stopped. And they looked at me and the person I was speaking to as if they were thinking, I have a decision to make. <laughs> I can either do what I want to do or listen to this weird looking dude. <laughs> to my surprise, they stopped. And then they just turned around and walked off. Right? Every day, we all have moral decisions to make, and we have to ask ourselves, do I continue doing what I want to do, or do I live for him who died for me and satisfies all my needs? With all of the evil that is committed throughout the world, even unbelievers realize that there is something wrong in the hearts of men and women. So they gather together and sing Kumbaya, and we are the world, we are the children. But how many of them hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness? Apart from Christ's righteousness, there is only self-righteousness. Apart from Christ's righteousness, we are like people who, who are suffering from a painful disease and long to be relieved of the pain, but will not bother to find out the root cause of the pain. We don't bother to find out that the only real happiness in life comes from the one who created us. And he created us in such a way that the only time we experience true and lasting joy is when we are imitating him. That's why he gave Christians his spirit and made us new creations so we may imitate him. That's why we can be compassionate, loving, and forgiving on our jobs, even on jobs where incompetence and laziness reign. That's why we can be kind, loving, and faithful when our spouse is not. Remember 2 Corinthians 13 and 5. Test yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you. To hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness means when I'm not compassionate, loving, kind, forgiving, or faithful, I recognize that I am now the one in sin. No matter who sinned against me to make me angry. And by the way, nobody can make you what you weren't already on the inside. 
Nobody has that power. What do I mean? Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Matthew chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. When the heart of a good person, meaning one whose goodness has been imputed to them from Christ's righteousness, when their heart is being squeezed by the trials of life, some form of goodness will still come out of their mouth. Whether it's thanksgiving to God for sustaining them through the trial or comfort that they give to those who are riding through the trials with them. But when an angry person, even those who may have been suppressing their anger for years, has their heart squeezed by the trials of life, sustained bitterness, vulgarity, and unquenchable anger comes forth. There's no forgiveness. Now, I understand that there is such a thing as righteous indignation. I'm not talking about that. Blasphemy against God and evil committed against God's people has not, not made this particular person or people angry, but out of the, the abundance of anger that was already in their hearts, their mouth speaks. To prove my point, they're probably getting angry with me right now. Don't get angry with me. See Jesus. Back to the text. When Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, we have to ask ourselves, what type of righteousness should we be hungering and thirsting for? Is it an earthly righteousness where justice and equity is granted for everyone who is oppressed? Or is it a legal righteousness which most, most of the Jewish nation was eagerly pursuing. I believe Jesus was looking deeper than both of these areas. The type of righteousness that Jesus is speaking of, in this text anyway, is the justifying righteousness of Christ, which once again has been imputed to his people by God and received by his people by faith. Jesus is saying, instead of earnestly desiring the things that make you happy, seek the outworking of salvation that was freely established within you and sincerely, sincerely and fervently desire righteousness. Keep in mind, when he said this, Jesus himself had recently come out of a 40-day test in the wilderness, so he wasn't living a happy life where everything went his way. He rejected the authority, the wealth, and the sustenance offered to him by Satan and chose the righteousness that came from his father God. Jesus set the standard for what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is also in line with what Isaiah preached in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2, when he said, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. What was Isaiah talking about? Isaiah was surrounded by people who were chasing after what the other nations possessed by way of the false gods they served. 
Those nations were in bondage to the flesh and the devil through those false gods. And God's people foolishly yearned for that same type of bondage. Isaiah said, you're laboring and spending the money you've made from your labor on that which can never satisfy. On things that in time will leave you wanting. Instead, you should seek that thing which is free, which comes from your creator, righteousness. Later in this sermon, Jesus will tell them to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. What things? Everything concerning the full care and provision of God. In his sermon thus far, Jesus has said, blessedness is spiritual poverty, mourning over sin, meekness leading to humility, and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. For the people who exemplify these traits, they shall possess the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth, and they shall be satisfied. What is it to be satisfied? I think the 18th century Baptist pastor, John Gill, nailed it when he said, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be so satisfied with Christ's righteousness that they shall never seek for any other righteousness as a justifying one in the sight of God. This being full, perfect, sufficient, and entirely complete, end quote. The very thing that so many are willing to sacrifice their lives for is the very thing that God is going to give freely to his people. Fulfillment, contentment, satisfaction. The world is ours. Others are borrowing it for a time, but we will receive a better version of it. Let me close with this. Never in the history of mankind was there ever a desire to be holy which God was not willing to gratify? And the good news that Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the grave, thus defeating death, has provided a way to satisfy all who truly desire to be holy. To those who are unsaved and believe they are too far gone for God to save them, let me assure you that as long as you're still breathing, God is able to grant you a new heart, a new mind, and a new life. If today, perhaps... Perhaps you have a new and strange desire to follow Christ. Perhaps today is the day of salvation for you. And perhaps right now God is calling you to believe and follow Christ as Lord and Savior. The promise is for all who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Let us pray. Father, as the world is hungering and thirsting for things that only bring short-term fulfillment, use us to tell them of the salvation that fully satisfies. We know you will accomplish all things according to your eternal plan. We only ask that you will use us along the way. Help us to tell all with compassion that all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen.